Father, I thank you for the morning, and I thank you for the opportunity to truly gather. Um, sometimes I think we flippantly say those things, but we thank you that we uh, have a place, that there's uh, the body of Christ, that we can come together and be nourished by your word and, and worship together. Uh, and may, may this time, Father, be sweet. Please bless it uh, for your glory and for our our benefit. We love you and we thank you for what you have done for us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 13. Jump in. Jumping in. Hebrews chapter 13. Next week will be our last week. So we're going to do uh, some topical studies over the course of the summer, which is upon us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. I'll give you just a second. To get there. In recap, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of believers in the first century, and uh, they were convinced of the gospel, and the book of Hebrews outlines different examples of how they were truly pursuing Christ, uh, even against much persecution, and so they took it, that persecution, even with joy, but they found themselves slowing down in their run, if you will. They found themselves getting a little discouraged, facing persecution, and even wondering, would it be better for me just to kind of go back to what I used to believe in the old sacrificial system of Judaism? And the author of Hebrews is writing to them to encourage them in the gospel that it is a better covenant. Uh, he's writing to remind them of the things that they have come to believe, but also to warn them. And this, so there's some very, very strong warnings of turning their back on the gospel. And a lot of people have said that if there's one word that summarizes the book of Hebrews, it's the word better, that Jesus is a better way. And so that's the context of where we've been for the last several weeks. And as we're wrapping it up, uh, we'll see the author continue to um, show some of those points. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 13, 1 through 16. I'm reading this from the ESV. I'd love for you to follow along with me says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, 
Then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, this text that we're looking at here, the very beginning of chapter 13, begins with a command. All right? It begins with a simple one-sentence command, and then it spends the next several verses kind of putting some meat on the bones of that command. So verses 1 through 6 begin with the command to let brotherly love continue, period. And then it goes and outlines four ways that that can be shown, all right? Because there might be many different versions or definitions. What does it mean to let brotherly love continue? And it gives four examples. Verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Uh, The second thing it says is, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also also are in the body. Uh, The third thing, it says, Let marriage... Uh, be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And then number four, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, what we're going to do is we're actually going to come back to this piece, all right, because it, it's brought up later in the text. But it starts off by saying, let brotherly love continue, put some meat on the bones of what that means, and then it goes on. So verse seven, all right, let's keep treading forward. Verse seven, it says this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What the author is doing here is he is presenting a very compelling reminder to the original audience of what motivates a believer and what motivates a believer. Now, we could all come up with our our pretty standard Sunday school, rather maybe even cliche answers, even if those cliche answers are right. But the author is is presenting a a very real couple statements here that say this is why we do what we do, and this is what can fuel you to keep on going. Now, today, in 2015, we we still need motivation. We still need reminders of why, if you're a Christ follower, why we live the way that we live. And so I want to pause just for a moment here and ask us ask you the question on what motivates you to live a Christ-like life. And I want you just to kind of answer that in your mind, all right? What motivates you to live a Christ-like life? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. I ask myself the question. I think this is important because... um, it's standard operating procedure, if you're a human, uh, to forget your motivation. You know, we've all been motivated to do different things in life, uh, whether it's save money well, uh, maybe motivated to eat better or exercise more, uh, motivated to conquer a certain sin, motivated to uh, uh, work harder at, at work, maybe whatever it happens to be, motivated to keep a cleaner house, <laughs> you know? And, and, and a lot of times, what happens, and we've all been there before, is life gets busy, right? Uh, unexpected things come up, maybe with savings, you know, you just aren't able to save as much. Um, and sometimes you just depend on routine. Like, this is just kind of what I do every day, so I'm going to keep chugging away. And what I've seen in my life 
with the things that I, I prioritize and, and, and try to have the right motivations for is sometimes when I get busy or when I get discouraged or life just kind of gets going, I just depend on my routine. This is just what I do because this is just what I do, right? I just drop X number amount of my savings or I just have my quiet time in the morning or I just do this or do that. And eventually, I think, down that, that road, we all begin to ask ourselves questions of like, why am I doing this? You know, right? Or is this really what's best, the best use of my time? Or is this the best thing for me to be doing? And oftentimes, we've all been there before, we might stop saving, you know? Or we let our house, our house fall into disarray. Or we quit trying as, as hard to defeat some of that sin in our life. Or our quiet time puts out, right? And, and often what gets us back is we go back to the original motivation, right? That this is really important. I really want this goal financially. Or I really need to be in the word as a believer if I'm really going to grow. So the author here is bringing them back and saying it's, it's, it's worthy. This is a worthy thing to be reminded of why we're doing what we're doing. And, I, and, and, and the author here starts off in verse 7 to me in a very interesting way because he's drawing attention um, not to uh, the WWJD bracelet. How many of you wore one of those at some point in your life? Be honest. We can, all right. The WWJD, it seems like that should be the motivation. It reminds you on your wrist, you know, what would Jesus do? Because that's, I mean, what other example are we going to follow, right? Jesus is always the right Sunday school answer. But the author here actually goes to very real-life people with names. Now, we don't know their names, but the author says, remember your leaders, all right? Remember the people who taught you and spoke to you the word of God, it says here in verse 7. And every commentator agrees that when it says speaking to you the word of God, that they're speaking of actual teaching them doctrine, the foundations of their beliefs, and really why, conv- convincing reasons why they believe what they believe. And we look back in, in chapter 6 of Hebrews, and it, and it actually speaks of, of the elementary doctrines. And then it lists some of these elementary doctrines, and it says things like uh, repentance and faith. I mean, that might be elementary, but that's some heavy-duty stuff, too, you know, especially turning away from Judaism. It speaks about resurrection and eternal judgment. That the reason why we're living this way the reason why we're convinced that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God and that his death meant something eternal for us, and we must have faith in that. We must repent of our former way of living because there is a resurrection of, of the body, that there is new life, there is something better to be found. And the author here first says, I want you to remember those people who taught you those foundational principles and doctrines that led to your faith in Christ. Remember them. The second sentence in there, if you have it in front of you, look at it. It says, consider the outcome of their way of life. And as I read several different authors on this text, they all agreed that this meant their death. That they were killed for their faith. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God... And consider the outcome of their way of life, comma, and imitate their faith. That there are people, this is the original audience here, the author is saying there are people that you know, 
You knew their names. And they believed this with such conviction that all the way up to their life was lost because they stood up for their faith. Now, in 2015 America, um, I don't know the name of anybody who has lost their life for their faith. But in 2015, there are people around the world who are losing their lives for their faith. And we see it in the news. You know, the ISIS thing, and I believe it was in Nairobi where the attack on the Christian school took place. 115 or so students gunned down. It's all pictures, pretty graphic. Um, there are people out there now, I don't want to say this in a, in a doomsday, bummer sort of way, but I do believe that there is a value in asking ourselves the question, um, how firmly do I believe the things that I say that I believe? Because it's not a particular threat for us here, it's too easy, I think, for us to kind of candy-coated coast and just kind of believe like, yeah, I don't like I'm good. And God forbid that we ever have to face a situation like that. I don't desire that. I don't want that. But there's a value in realizing that there are people who have been so convinced of the gospel that they would give up their life for it. And we ought to be motivated by them. We should be. You know, if you think back to the point in time when you gave your life to Christ, and remember what it was that convinced you or convicted you that you did, in fact, need a Savior, somebody outside of yourself to save you from your sin and, and to be a guarantee of your salvation, there are people in other countries who had that same experience when they first heard the gospel in that real way and turned their life in faith to, to live a Christ-honoring life that held on to that to, to violent ends. So the author says, remember your leaders that have gone before you, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. As a very tangible, I want to I live it out that strongly even if my life isn't asked of me, I want to live it out that strongly. Verse 8, it moves into the second motivation, motivator. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, when it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, um, it's interesting to look at um, Christology, which is the study of Christ and, his, and the work of Christ on the cross and his character. Um, I want us to flip to Colossians chapter 1. Flip backwards to Colossians chapter 1. And I want us to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, 15. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, these verses are speaking of Jesus specifically. It says that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. That these verses speak to the eternal nature of God the Son, that He's before all things. That God the Father used Jesus Christ as an avenue of creating the very universe that we live in right now. That he's not only the creator, but it says in these verses that Jesus Christ is the very sustainer of the universe. That he is the one that holds the laws of physics, the laws of nature. That without Jesus Christ as the creator, sustaining even the natural world, things would, things would fall apart. It says in Psalm uh, 102, if you would, flip back to the Old Testament. Speaking of uh, a representation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, Psalm 102, verse 25. Once again, playing off that Jesus is the same yesterday, it's a day and forever. In Psalm 102, verse 25, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands, and they will perish, but you will remain, and they will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. This speaks of the immutability or the unchangeable nature of Jesus. That he is constant. He is not changing. He cannot change, and he will not change, and it's promised to us in Scripture. That Jesus Christ is trustworthy. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says that He, and the hope that we have in the gospel, is an anchor for our soul. That's probably one of my favorite lines in the whole book of Hebrews. He is an anchor for our soul. So He is unchanging, He is eternal, He is supreme, He is creator, He is sustainer, and He is ultimately trustworthy. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, watch those who have gone before you. And imitate their faith because they held on to it so dearly. But Jesus Christ, the one that they built their life on, is unchanging. He is the same yesterday when you accepted Him as your Savior. He is the same today as you're dealing with this stuff and persecution and, and frustrations and even confusions. He's the same today as He was yesterday. And you know what? He will be the same tomorrow. You know, having grown up in the church and coming to faith... <clears throat> When I was in high school, I think it's so, we, as, a, as a human, I'm so predictable in, in forgetting the things that I already know when it comes to the application of the gospel. And that I remember the time when I accepted Christ as my Savior. Um, and today, as I deal with the things in my life today, I, I work hard to apply the truth of the gospel because he's the same yesterday and today. And forever, but it seems like so often as I as I march forward through through time, I reach situations 
and frustrations and confusions that I forget to apply the gospel to. <laughs> that I, I need to go into life saying, I have uh, the hope of eternity, and it applies to whatever may come, because I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't. I don't know if it'll be tragedy, I don't know if it'll be glory, but the gospel applies. And I think that there's a call here to all believers to recognize the person and work of Jesus Christ, how he has applied when you accepted him as your Savior, how he applies today in the situations that you're in, and that he will apply no matter what comes your way tomorrow. He's unchanging, and we can trust that. And he's calling those that are under actual persecution to be motivated um, by the hope that is found in the gospel. Look back at Hebrews 13, verse 9. It says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Um, Buster says this all the time. Speaking of, the, of our culture, he said things are changing quickly. You know? Uh, pop culture is making uh, moral decisions and this is all over the news. The Supreme Court making a ruling on, on homosexual marriage. And it's like, you know, 15 years ago, it was in discussion, but it wasn't on the table. You know what I mean? And, it, and it's just happening really quick. That there, there's a, there's, there, there are blowing winds in culture. The popular opinion changes. Unfortunately, that affects the church. Our church. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus Christ and his gospel has always been the same and it always will be the same. Caution. Be warned. Don't, don't be distracted by diverse and strange teachings. Rather, it says, look at the verse there in the middle. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, whatever happens to pop up. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. <laughs> and, and, and what is, what is this? The grace, by definition, is here is, is the unmerited favor of God. And we see that the unmerited favor of God is shown to us in the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved us that he gave his only son. We see in 1 John 4, 19 that we love him as Christians because he first loved us. He's speaking of the gospel here. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It is good for the heart to be buffed up, to be enabled, to be shored up by the gospel. That you can be fed and you can stand up against these strange and diverse teachings that might blow this way and that way. Lauren and I have had several conversations about people that we know um, that are just not consistently in the word. They're not reading good stuff. And they don't have solid people talking into their lives. And it seems like that these folks that we know are really easily kind of blown over by kind of whatever the new Christian book is. You know what I mean? 
Um, and like, hey, this is popular. I'll read this. And it's got some kind of iffy, iffy theology. You know, it might not be totally heretical, but kind of like, I'm not sure about this. And we just want to say to them, you, you got to read some good stuff first. Read some solid meat before you go and dance around in, in iffy stuff. You know what I mean? And maybe don't even, don't even read that, but read, read some solid stuff first so that you can be strong. You know, there are two girls um, that worked at East Cooper for a little while that went on a mission trip to Nepal that I mentioned earlier. And they were there when the earthquake hit. And uh, for just following them on their Facebook posts, they, they said several times, please pray for us uh, because our immune systems are weak. And they had to spend several days um, sleeping in a field, you know. Um, that wasn't the plan. <laughs> and um, with limited uh, water and food. Uh, and um, what happens when that, when that happens is that you naturally are setting yourself up to get sick, right? Because you're not getting the basics, you know? You're not being fed with just the nutrients that you need and getting the sleep that you need so that your body can fight against the bad. And it's the same spiritually. It is good for the heart to be strengthened with the gospel, to keep hearing it, to keep speaking it, to keep singing it, and to be reading it, to be in it consistently. Because without it, without getting the proper nutrients that you need and without getting the proper sleep that you need, you are susceptible to get sick. And without receiving the proper spiritual nutrients, you are susceptible to being blown back and forth by the winds of the culture. Being convinced that the gospel changes or being convinced that the doctrines that we hold true, that we see founded in the scriptures, no longer apply today in our situation. Which there are some people, even in Baptist circles, that make statements like that, and that's heretical. That's wrong. It's sinful and it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It says... At the end of verse 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. He says that we have an altar as believers, as Christ followers, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. This is a reference to those in Judaism who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who believe that the old way will still lead them to God. And the author is saying, we have access to peace through the gospel, a joy through the gospel, a rest, a true soul rest through the gospel, and a confidence that is just not available to those who don't believe. And that sounds very uh, elitist and exclusive. But when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and I am the truth, and I am the life. He was saying, I am the only way, and I am the only truth, and I am the only life. And no man can come to the Father except through me only, as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you want to call it exclusive, then you can. But Jesus meant it to be exclusive. 
and not in a negative way, but a please see the truth because those who believe in the gospel eat off of an altar that offers things that no other offer, that no other altar can offer. And it is better. It is better. It is sweeter. And it is eternal. Moving forward in the text, in verse 12, it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. I'm sorry, let's move back to verse 11. This is speaking of the old sacrificial system. It says in verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the most high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. When we look through the Old Testament, we see rules, we see regulations. Uh, a lot of them are for simple health purposes. And then when there was death, whether it was of a human or of an animal, that the bodies were supposed to be taken outside of the camp or outside of the city um, and be disposed of or to be burned. It makes sense, doesn't it? You don't want to do that in the middle of where people are living. And it was outside the tent. It was outside the camp. It was outside the city where you would take uh, your trash and your leftovers and the dead animals to be disposed of. Um, and a lot of times it's where the poor were. The lepers weren't allowed in, in the camp, in the city. Um, those that were diseased or unclean. And it says in these verses that Jesus suffered and died outside the camp. It says in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus came not for those who are well, but for those who are in need of a physician, those who are sick. He said that I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners. And what Jesus meant is that I am here for those people who see that they are in fact broken. For those people who see that they are unrighteous. I am here for those that are messed up. I am here for those who realize that by themselves they cannot be made right with God. And he suffered and died on a hill outside of the city for the broken. For the lost. For the disenfranchised. For those who struggle with sin and wish they didn't, but don't know how to fix it. That Jesus Christ died for the despairing. And the author is drawing attention to this to draw attention to the gospel. That the gospel isn't just about people who might be well-dressed and gather on a Sunday. That the gospel isn't just about um, doing everything the right way. That the gospel isn't just about looking clean, you know, and, and hiding sin. The gospel says that we're all messed up. That we're all broken. That we all struggle. That we all find ourselves in places of despair and discouragement at times. 
and that Jesus is the salve, you know? That Jesus is the medicine. And that when you have the hope of the gospel that says that Jesus and his sacrifice can cover over our sins, that we can go to him for restitution, that we can go to him to find our identity that's outside of our broken selves, that there's hope there. And where else do you find that hope? Where, do you, where else do you fill up the broken pieces of who you are? You know? We've all tried, and then the world tries to fill up the broken pieces of who we are by maybe a career. That's not promised. Maybe it's a bank account. But that, that can get drained. We've probably all had that happen. Maybe it's in relationships, but we've been in broken ones. You know? Maybe it's in status or physical ability. We all get sick. Tragic things happen. Like you can, you can look for those, but they're not a guarantee. Only through the gospel, which is to the broken, can we be made whole in what Jesus Christ has done. And so, again, the author here is presenting a, a pretty compelling reminder of what we're supposed to be about as believers. We're about Jesus and what he, what he did on the cross for us. And that we can look to people who have paid the ultimate price and say, that's what I'm about too. They did it. I can do it with the strength and the help of the gospel. Now the text in verse 13 moves into a very, I believe, a very appropriate therefore. And, and I, I, I think I've said this before, but I love the word therefore in Scripture because it brings it together. And it's like, therefore, because of these these motivators, because of these things that we've been talking about, because of the gospel, which is better, which is more glorious, which is there for you no matter where you're at in life. Therefore, here's some application I'm going to put out on a platter for you, okay? So in verse 13, it says, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This offers three points of application. It says, therefore, number one, let us go to him outside the city where he has made his ultimate sacrifice. Let us go to him outside the city and bear the reproach that he endured. When, when, when Jesus died on the cross, it was culturally a despicable thing. It was a very unclean thing. Not only the fact that it was a death, but that it was punishment for crime. Um, and it was torture. Uh, it was very bloody. It was very dirty. And you weren't supposed to come in contact, that, contact with that, especially with the Sabbath approaching. If you did, then you had to be cleansed. So there's much reproach um, put on Christ. Reproach defined is uh, criticism, to be shamed, and to be blamed. And again, I, I don't want to be a doomsdayer. Um, but the Bible, in practical Christian living, deals with some very controversial things in our culture today. The Bible deals with sex. The Bible deals with how we handle our money. The Bible deals with how we parent. The Bible deals with uh, marriage. 
the Bible deals with where you base your personal identity. And there are people out there in this very real, everyday world that we live in that would strongly disagree with you and with what the Bible has to say about some of these very real issues. Um, Russell Moore wrote an art, uh, a blog in the Gospel Coalition, and I'm going to botch the title of it, but he said basically that religious freedom is not freedom from ridicule. And we, we may face some of that in, in America. Ridicule in, in forms of, of persecution. I don't think at the, at the, at the lengths that we were seeing overseas, but, but maybe. To bear the reproach of Christ is to stand up for the gospel in a loving way, in a, in a, in a gospel-motivated way, to be able to say that I, I believe that there's one way. That's not, that's not the tolerant protocol of our culture. Um... And I, and, and I know people who have said things in conversations with people who say, so you believe I'm going to go to hell, <laughs> you know? And I don't say, you can handle that well. He said, well, I, I know one man who, who said this. He said, I, I take the Bible very seriously, you know? He, he deflected it in a good way to Scripture. He said, I take the Bible very seriously. And the Bible says, and he outlined it, he says, this is what I believe. This is what I hold to. This is where I plant it. This is where my feet are set. And like I, I can love you, and I don't hate you for me for disagreeing, but this is what I believe. That's not popular. And it might even be a crime for us to say that. But to bear the reproach of Christ, to say that, come whatever, I believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And I believe what he has to say about the way that I live that life. Number two, we see in Scripture, um, in verse 15, as a point of application, it says, Through him, meaning through Jesus, through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let me read that again, verse 15. Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I think it's so interesting that the author uses once here and a second time in the next verse the word sacrifice. I mean, doesn't that just sound like the Mosaic law? Doesn't that sound like the old, the old covenant taking your sacrifices, taking the animals, offering them on the altar? And the author here is saying that we are called to offer sacrifices of praise through him, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That I believe that there is something holy and something sacred by verbally speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. All through the Old Testament, we see God calling his people to say and say again, to sing and sing again, to continually acknowledge, not just mentally agree that, hey, this is out there and I agree with these things, but acknowledge to each other, to speak them to the nations, to tell and retell your kids, 
to, to have memory triggers so that you would do this again and say and say and say again. To actually speak the gospel because we need the truth of the gospel. You know, we, we, we say the Apostles' Creed in church all the time because we as a church believe that there is something valuable in the spoken word of the people of God. And the Apostles' Creed was written as just exactly what it is, as a creed that says this, this boils down the ground that we, stay, that we stand on. That we agree on these things here. So we are going to say it as an oath. We're going to say it as a creed. And we're going to be reminded of it. That, oh yeah, I do believe that Jesus is the only way. I do believe that I need him every day. I do believe that without him I'm, I'm lost and I'm broken. I do believe that without him I, I would have no real joy, or no real hope, or no real peace. And be reminded of that through the spoken word. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, and he died, and he was buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come and judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. To say those things, I believe, are sacred. And that even in your own quiet times, I want to challenge you to speak the gospel to yourself. To speak the gospel in your community group. Because I don't think that we're shaking the fist of denial when we have a community group and just do a study on 1 Timothy. Yeah, I think it can be really good. But speak the gospel that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. That we need the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for our very salvation to actually say those words. Because when we do so, it is acting like a sacrifice of praise and is pleasing to God. And if that's the case, then we need to be doing that. So one, bear the reproach that Christ bore to offer a sacrifice of praise with lips that acknowledge his name. And then it says in verse 16, the end of of the text, it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. That statement alone seems a little vague, doesn't it? If somebody ended with the statement like, all right, go do good. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, uh, you got some more direction for me, I'll, I'll do the best that I can. Jump back to the beginning of this text in verse 1. We have some definition to this. When it says, let brotherly love continue. Again, this is speaking to believers who are part of the family of God. Let brotherly love continue. And he gives four examples of brotherly love. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. That we as Christians, as Christ followers, 
are called to hospitality. I mean, who, in one sense, who are the most needy out there? In, 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 in our group, it's those that are strangers or new or haven't been here or don't have the connections that you have or uncertain or nervous or uncomfortable. They're needy. And there's a call in Scripture that we see other places for believers to be hospitable, to be welcoming, to draw people in, to to love, in one sense, the unlovely, not physically unlovely, but it's natural when we come into a place like this to do what? Go sit with the people you know. You know, I haven't seen you in a while. I think I'm going to chat with you. But there's a call that is holy. Because he uses the example here that says, because by so doing, some have entertained angels. To me, this reminds me of Matthew 25 that says, um, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger... You welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you as a stranger or naked? And when did we visit you in prison? And God will say, as you did to one of the least of these, you have done it to me. So when we do this to the least of these, it has an eternal consequence because it's done for our Lord. And so welcoming strangers, and by so doing, some have welcomed angels, is that some have, have extended hospitality for, for those that are representatives of God himself. Now, guys, this is not an <clears throat> opportunity for you to introduce yourself and be like, are you an angel? Yeah. <laughs> Can I get your number? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's obviously making a joke. But there's a truth here. Do good. Welcome strangers, even if it's uncomfortable for you. Pull people into the body of Christ because there's life and hope and community and nourishment here within the body. Show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3. This, these verses could have been written a month ago, I think, because it's so applicable. You know, show, show hospitality to strangers. We need to do that. We need to do that here in the body of Christ. Verse 3, remember, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Um, when it says those who are mistreated, um, it's speaking of... I mean, we have so many social justice issues, don't we? I mean, they're screaming in the news. And when it says to remember those who are in prison and to take care of them and to those who are mistreated as if you are mistreated, it is a call on believers to take, take, to take care of our, of our own as part of the body, it says here. But there's a broader call, even when we look back to Matthew chapter 25, that says, when you take care of those people in prison, those people who are naked, those people who are sick, those people who are hungry, those people who are thirsty, when you do those things, you're doing them for me. 
and we have issues that we need to be taking care of people who are mistreated and even those who are in prison. Verse 4. How about this one? Let marriage be held in honor. You know? That's uh, on its, it, seemingly on its way out, but this is a call to believers. That within the body of Christ, we can stand on the gospel. That we can say that we will hold marriage in honor. And you know what? Let me, let me throw a word of caution out here. I don't want us to read this text that says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sometimes it's, it's too easy for us within the church to read that and say, Yeah, yeah, people will be judged for their perversion. This is written to believers. We've all got a sex drive in this room. The sexual sin is very real and a problem. And it, it's not a problem outside our walls. This is, this is an issue. This is a struggle within the church. And there's a call here to honor marriage. I think there's a call for us to stand up for it in the public circle. But there's a call for us to honor it here. You know, you know, we're not exempt from temptation. But I think it's so easy to slide into this, uh, read a verse like that and be like, yeah, judgment's coming. You know? We knew this was wrong. We're fighting for what's right. You know? That's cold-hearted. I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. Um, and that we, as representatives of a better, more holy more righteous way of living can hold the marriage bed undefiled and marriage in high regard. We talked about this a little bit on Thursday night that if the, the, the culture's swinging, you know, it seems like the Titanic is sinking, you know, you can try to hold it up. <laughs> I'm not sure what good it's going to do. But the hope is in the gospel. The hope is in the gospel. <laughs> And if we are living pure lives based on the gospel, and as you get married, and you hold marriage in high regard, and you protect yourself, and live a pure life, it can be a light in the darkness. And people will see that there's something different, there's something better, and my life is shattered, and I hate the person that I used to be married to, and my kids hate me, and if they see that example of gospel truth, that's the hope. You know? That's the hope. So this is a call on the church. And then the fourth thing. In verse 5, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money, Mount Pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> And be content with what you have. Not just, this is not just a, a numb, like, shame on you statement. Because there are other people in the world who have so much more. And do you realize how good we have it in America? And people don't. And yada, yada, yada. It says, be content with what you have. 
Keep your life free from the love of money because we have a Savior who has said, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. It shifts the contentment factor onto God and riding His boat Rather than just saying, hey, God has blessed me with my boat of money and my job, and I should just be content with this, that might sink, right? Tracking? But be content because he has said, I will never leave you. And Psalm 1, this is a quote from Psalm 118 when it says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. I will be content with what I have. Come what may. I will never leave you. I had a children's book when I was little, and it was a picture of a hand that said, I will never leave you. And there have been times through the course of my life where I was scared. I'm talking to my... Through, now, I'm not talking about when I was a little kid scared in the dark, but my conversion story is one that was just scared of my eternal security. How can I know for sure that my soul was safe? And I kept going back to that hand in that children's book that said, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. That is God making that promise. Not your best friend, you know, or somebody you're dating. It is God. And I'll never forsake you. Come what may, if we have the Lord, it is enough. Find your contentment there. This is hard. This is not easy. When things aren't going your way, if you've got a load of debt, if you're going to lose your job, if you're having a hard time finding one, if you are single and you wish you weren't, it goes on and on and on. Contentment doesn't just come in marriage, you know? Contentment doesn't just come in a sweet job. Contentment doesn't just come once you graduate. Contentment is only found in the one who can legitimately, trustworthy, in a trustworthy way, in an eternal manner, say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can hold that. We're finishing up Hebrews next week. It's been an encouragement to me, for me to study. And let me leave you with the last half of the last sentence of this text. At the end of verse 16, it says, Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That when we do these things, we are pleasing to God. It brings glory to His name, and it opens blessings to us. Such things, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your truth and for your word. And I thank you, Father, that you are enough through Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to be motivated by the gospel, to be reminded of that truth, and, Father, to live live in such a way that we are looking out for the less fortunate or taking care of those who are mistreated. Father, that we are guarding our very sexuality personally. And Father, we are content in the gospel alone. Everything else is bonus and blessing. We love you. We thank you for your truth of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
We'll see you Thursday at Connect, and then hopefully you can make it uh, Saturday. If you've got 10 bucks you want to give to me now, please do so for the uh, uh, scavenger hunt. Otherwise, we have a few, more, a few minutes. Greet those around you, say hi to some new faces, be hospitable. Mm. Might be angels in here. Ask <laughs> away. I've been overwhelmed at work. Yeah. Not in a, not in a bad way, but just. I feel, I feel you. Swimming away in it. Do you plan on doing something with your mom? Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna be mostly just doing that. Like yeah. We'll probably go to church and go on. Uh, Sunday when our schedules mesh. Yeah, mesh. It's a very good word. <laughs> My um.